Welcome to the kingdom. I was just told that it's really nice because this castle has a moat right behind it. Uh, uh, junior church, four years old through fourth grade. You're dismissed to walk. Have a great time over there, guys. So one of the things you hear a lot in church and through Christians is that we need to share the gospel. We need to tell other people about Jesus. It's an essential part of being a disciple. After his resurrection, Jesus commanded all of his disciples to do this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples were not meant to keep the message of Christ, the message of hope and eternity to themselves. They had to pass it on. They had to share it. And just before his ascension, Jesus made even more specific in the direction of his disciples. They were to go out and do this. You will be my, my uh, witnesses in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth still need to hear the gospel. So this directive is just as much a part of our walk today as it was with those early disciples. But knowing what we should do and actually doing it can be very separate things in our lives. We know people who don't love Jesus are destined for an eternal separation from God. Scripture says it. Let me just say that very plainly. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you go to hell, according to Scriptures. And we know this if we've read Scriptures. We also know that if we have that relationship with Christ, not only do we get to go to heaven, but that we should invite them, those other people, to come and join with us. We have that message of hope and transformation. We know that Jesus promises to go with us as we speak the message. So why is it so many people have a hard time sharing their faith? It really, that, that's a very common thing in the American church. Why don't we just open our mouths and say what we're about in our faith and spread the word? The number one reason that people say that stops them from evangelizing and sharing their faith is fear. They are scared. They're scared they're going to do it wrong. They're scared they're going to come up to somebody. And here's the more specific. They are scared they're going to be asked a question that they cannot answer. They're scared they're not going to know. Does that ring true for anyone? That somebody's going to come and ask you a question, you're like, I don't know, and therefore I'm going to have a bad example, and I just don't want to give a bad reason for believing. Have you ever been asked one of those really hard questions about faith? What about why does a God of love let bad things happen? Do all religions lead to God? Is, is there a conflict between science and Christianity? Why can't God just overlook our sin? How can Jesus be man and God at the same time? How can my family member be so hurting? How can my friend's family be torn apart? How? Those are very hard questions. How can we be a good witness for Jesus if we can't answer these? You want to share the gospel, but we don't want to look foolish, so we end up 
being quiet. That's how it works a lot of times. Not for all of us. Not all the time, but it happens. As we continue looking at all the different disciples that Jesus called to be the first disciples to share the message of salvation, we come to Philip. We're going to start in John 6, verses 1 through 7 here. Sometime after, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now this sets the scene of when this is happening, okay? When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, notice he directed it to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people? Now why did Jesus ask this question specifically to Philip? By this time, Philip, as 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 well as the other disciples, had seen Jesus perform many miracles. But in this situation, Jesus asked a very hard question to Philip. All Philip could see was the problem. And it's a huge problem. In verse 6 he says, uh, Jesus says, He only asked this to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. How many parents have asked their kids a question they already knew the answer to? You're like, so where were you? Oh, you know the answer, and you're just testing to see if they're going to be honest. Jesus said, where can we buy enough food for all this? Because he already knew the answer. He tests Philip. He already had in mind what he's going to do. Can't you picture Philip here? He's, he didn't have the luxury of carrying a calculator in his pocket, so he's out there trying to figure out, calculate the cost in his head. And every time another 10 or 15 people walks up, Over that hill, he starts calculating. Verse 7, Philip answers to him, to Jesus, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, is he calculating properly? He just said it's going to take over a year's wages, over half a year's wages for each person to have a bite. I can tell you, having a bite is not the same as a meal. About eight months' wages. The Greek says 200 denarii. Eight months' worth of wages would not buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. That's a very precise answer. 200 denarii, 200 days' wages wouldn't be enough. But it's the only answer that Philip can come with. Philip is a disciple, but he can't come up with the right answer here. Jesus asked him a question, a very hard question, and Philip failed. We're going to jump to John 14. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I am going, um, what I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. Most of us have heard these verses. Jesus is going to prepare a place for those who follow him. The disciples should have understood this. And then Thomas, we're going to look at Thomas in another Sunday. But Thomas says, no, we don't know the way, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth. 
and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus is saying right here, I am the way, the only way to God. Some people believe that Jesus is one of the ways. That there's different ways to get to heaven. I, I'm going to tell you right now, there are two ways to get to heaven. Okay, two ways. You either be perfect or you go through Jesus. That's your only ways. Now, who here is perfect? That means you must choose Jesus. Okay? And He is the only way. Being good is not enough. Going to church is not enough. Praying, reading the Bible, helping people will not get you to heaven. Only Jesus will. He says so right here. Jesus goes on to say, when you know me, you know God the Father. That's a very bold claim. Jesus is saying, I am the only way you can get to heaven. And when you know me, when you see me, you see God the Father. And here comes Philip. Verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. We need to hear this in that context. Jesus just said, I am the way. And if you see me, you see God. And Philip says, okay, show me. Wait a minute. This, this must have caused pain to Jesus. Like, are you kidding me, Philip? We are one day away from the crucifixion at this point. Christ has been with these guys for three years. Day in, day in, out. Living with them, teaching with them, laughing with them, crying with them. And Philip has the gall to say, okay, Jesus, show me. Hadn't Jesus already shown the men that he was God? He fed the 5,000. Hey, Philip, how much will it, how, where can we get the food for this? Well, eight months wouldn't even pay for it. And then he does it. Hey, Philip, remember when I walked on the water? Hey, Philip, remember when I raised Lazarus? Hey, Philip, when you see me, you see God. Okay, show me. He has shown these men. And yet here's Philip, a leader among the twelve, still completely missing the obvious. Philip doesn't have all the answers, which raises a real issue. In God's family, I want you to hear this, in God's family, you can be a disciple without knowing all the answers. And does that make you ineffective? Not necessarily. You do not have to know all the answers. You need to know that. And you can still be an effective disciple of Christ. John chapter 1. We've already looked at this passage from our first sermon, looking at Nathaniel, but we're going to look at Philip in here, okay? John 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come and follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth? Exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip said. Now what does Philip know? He gets asked by Jesus, come and follow me. What theology and doctrine does he know at this point? Not much, he just knows Jesus. So here's some truths about Philip that I think all of us who want to be good disciples of Christ need to understand. First, Philip 
answered Jesus' call to discipleship. He answered it. Jesus says, come and follow me. And Philip obeys. It doesn't say, okay, Jesus, show me. Not at this point. He doesn't say that. Come and follow me. Okay, let me go get some buddies and come with you too. Philip followed. And he followed because of the second truth. Philip was looking for the Messiah. When he found Jesus, Philip followed. He says he, when he went to Nathaniel, he says, we have found the person. We have, that means he was looking for him. And here's the third truth. Philip helps others find Jesus. Right here, Philip is modeling a good disciple. When Jesus comes and says something, he answers. He is looking for what Jesus, the Messiah, is going to do. And he helps others to do that. He answers the call. He goes to his friend and he says, we've done this. While sharing with Nathaniel, Philip mentions that Jesus is from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Could anything good come from? That'd be like somebody saying, hey, we found this great person. He's from Garrett. Not Garrett Thompson. Okay. But from the town of Garrett. And most of you guys, especially in high school, will be, there's nothing good over there. And they would say the same thing about over here, right? We have this stigma. They have Nazareth. Nazareth is a nothing town. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about the Savior coming from Nazareth. And here Philip's saying, we found him. All the people who were in Nazareth were considered to be second class. No one important was ever born in Nazareth. Nathaniel doesn't expect Jesus to be any different. Social biases are hard to break down here. But there is an answer to this question. And if Philip knew it, he could have given it. Nazareth, is anything good come from there? And um, Philip doesn't start going off on all the reasons here. He could have said, well, Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And the scriptures even talk about that. He was raised up and trained later. You've heard the story about Bethlehem. Remember when we heard about the angel and the miracle birth? This is that. But he doesn't do that. Philip doesn't have the answer. He's confronted with this really difficult question. One that usually stops so many people from sharing the message of Christ. How does Philip answer? This is what we need to do. Philip didn't allow that to stop him. He didn't argue. He gives one of the best responses that he can think of. Philip's invitation to Nathaniel is to come and see. Come and see. That's the response. And I think this is a good response. There's something about these words that incite curiosity. Come and see. The, hey, Dad, come, come and see what I'm doing on the trampoline. And, and the dad's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to see. And the mom's like, I'll get the bandages and be right there. What? Come and see our new baby, how they're walking. And, and, and we want to go see. We're flocking to this come and see. Come and see our new car. It, it invites this curiosity to come and investigate. We should never underestimate the power of curiosity. It's very strong, and it is stronger than skepticism. Why is Nathaniel going with Philip in the end? His curiosity to see Philip. His answer, come and see.
In the end, Nathaniel makes a confession of faith. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. And as far as I know, very few people in all the history, very few people have been talked into believing in God or confessing Jesus as Christ. They have not been talked into it. It is not easy to make someone believing by winning a debate. We are supposed to win people for Christ, not win an argument for Christ. Notice where the focus is on that statement. We win people. That means relationship, talking with them, being and living with them, not information. Now, there's a lot of information that's good that will help you in the relationship, but the focus is on relationship. Over the years... The church as a whole has been involved in all sorts of studies about church growth and evangelism in an effort to figure out how to help the church grow. We want a growing, thriving, healthy church. There are a mountain of books written on this subject. Every year, more books come out saying, well, here's the key to church growth. Here's the key to church growth. Everyone has recommendations on programs, set design. It's a good one, right? Even though it has nothing to do with the sermon, it's awesome. But So there's set design, there's music, style of worship, the kind of preaching, even the sound system theology is covered in these books. The National Church Life Survey asked people who were new to church why they came. What brought you to church? The number one reason? An invitation by their friend. It wasn't the program. It wasn't the set design, sound system theology. It was an invitation. It was somebody who said, come and see. You don't have to have all the answers for that, do you? You don't have to have all the answers to simply say, come and see what this faith means. Jesus isn't looking for a salesman. He's looking for disciples. He isn't looking for somebody who can sweet talk or exaggerate the worth of his project. He doesn't need our clever techniques or persuasive arguments. He simply wants not yet believers to experience him. And all we need to do is say, come and see him. Jesus Christ is able to meet the longing of every human heart, not us. If people will only come and see in God's, in God's family, you can be a disciple without having to know all the answers. You can be incredibly effective because if you know Jesus, then all you need to do is invite people to come see Him, to come and see Jesus. The truth is, God usually uses the common, the ordinary, the simple to accomplish His biggest achievements. King David, the runt of the litter, the youngest and even the one that his dad didn't even consider became a king. He was a shepherd boy turned king. Joseph was a household slave. Moses was an 80-year-old sheep herder. Gideon was a common laborer working on the threshing floor hiding. Even Jesus was born in a stable and grew up in a peasant home. Jesus God is an expert at taking the common, ordinary, simple, and turning it into the extraordinary. What did Jesus do with bread and wine? He turned it into the most sacred and meaningful reminder we know, the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus used fishermen. Fishermen, tax collectors, unschooled men to become disciples and start the church to go and change the world. Jesus was crucified on a common cross, buried in a common borrowed tomb. And now those are the most recognized symbols of hope in the entire world. In God's family, you can be a disciple without having to know all the answers, and you can be effective. We don't need to be exceptional. We just need to be willing to be usable. You need to be willing to let God use you. To turn your lives over, your common daily activities over to God so that He can use them in a mighty way. And I've heard so many people, God can't use me that way. Look what He did with fish and bread. Look what He did with Lazarus. Look what He did. And then come and see what He'll do to you. We live in a time of great skepticism about the church. Part of the reason why there's so much skepticism about the church is because the world doesn't know what truth is anymore. We all think that, well, this is my truth and that's your truth. Those are called opinions. Because truth can't change. There's no such thing as personal truth. That's my personal opinion. Now, we can all have opinions. But truth is universal and never changes. And the church has forgotten that. The world has forgotten that. People are skeptical for good reasons. Some people were forced to go to church, the Sunday schools, the children, and now their mothers can't even get them to darken the door. Some people have had painful memories of the church. They were hurt and rejected because they didn't fit the stereotypical mold of a church. I don't know if you know this, but you can go talk to any minister's wife. There are expectations of what the preacher's wife is supposed to do. She is supposed to always dress in a dress, be able to sing wonderfully, lead the choir, play the piano, and do everything else the husband can't do. That's not true. But we have this, the minister has to do all these, and the youth minister got to do these, and we have all these molds that we think we got to fit into, and then we fail at it. And then we don't want to go back. Some were led, let down by the church when they needed help the most. I've seen people who were desperately crying out in the church that they were attending said, well, you didn't meet our standards, we can't help you. Some people were overused and burned out. They volunteered to do stuff, and so the church kept piling more and more on them because they were the only volunteers, and then pretty soon they're burned out, and then they leave. Others had the same attitude as Nathaniel. What good could come from the church? But we know the truth. All it needs to happen is for people to just come and see. Now, when we say come and see, I want to be very clear. It doesn't mean come and see our church. It doesn't mean come and see our preacher. Come and see our youth services. That is not what we need to say. And if you are saying those things, stop. Please stop. Dust and I are not the pinnacle of the church. We are the lower rungs, okay? We do not want people to come and see us. We need people to come and see Jesus 
working in us. We need to see Jesus living in us. We want people to come and see Jesus in our lives, moving in our church. Say that. Please do not say, come and see our preacher. Please don't. Come and see Jesus. Come and see love and faith in action. Come and see strangers becoming the next generation of disciples. Come and see the Holy Spirit moving. Come and see God's hand blessing our church. Come and see Jesus. You don't have to know all the answers. You just need to know the answer of Jesus. If we went around the room, we could say, what brought you to church here? Some of you were born and raised here. I mean, this is just where you've gone. Alan Holman, you've been here your whole life, haven't you? And then he brought his wife and made us even better. We, We have other people who just started coming in the last year or so. And there's something really neat about all of our stories, whether you grew up here or you just were a transplant. We're all here for Jesus. The rest of us are just bonus, but they're not the focus. We all have our story of coming here and finding meaning, truth, acceptance, hope, and love. We all have our story of when we found God, found Jesus Christ, and that could be well enough, but people are always looking for purpose and meaning in their own lives, and we can say, come and see. Come and see who gave me meaning. Come and see who saved me, who gave me purpose, who gave me life. Come and see that even though this world is crazy, I found something stable and solid. Come and see Jesus. Even though my life was broken, my family was broken, He gave me security. We live in a time of great spirituality where people want to believe, they just don't know what to believe. People are longing for a touch of the holy. They're just wanting an invitation to come and see. We can do it. That's one of my favorite things about Philip. He doesn't have all the answers and he fails sometimes, and yet he's listed as one of the disciples. He's one who told Nathaniel, just come and see for yourself. He didn't have to convince Nathaniel, he let Jesus do the work. Isn't that a great thing? You don't have to answer. You bring them to the answer. We need to be determined to give the first invitation to the rest of the world to come and see. Come and see Jesus, who is the only way. Come and see Jesus, who is the truth. Come and see Jesus, who is the real life. And then, when we're in heaven, we can one day say, Come and see all of this church. Come and see. Some of you are so worried that you're going to say the wrong phrases, the wrong answers. You're going to give the wrong example. Let me just put you to rest. You're going to. It's going to happen. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm glad last week's sermon wasn't recorded. There's a statement I said. It was a mis statement, and it could be taken real wrong. And afterwards, I'm like, man, that's not what I meant. But you didn't come to see me. You came to see Jesus. Isn't that what this is about? That's the kind of disciples we need to be. That's the kind of church 
we're going to stand and we're going to sing another song and we're going to go into prayer. And if you need to make a decision about coming and seeing God, about wanting to be one of his disciples, will you come and talk with us in the back? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you did come from heaven to see us here and then invite us to go to be there in heaven with you again. God, forgive us when we try to put on this air of superiority of this proper church work or the proper church look. Help us to just be authentic and to say, come and see you. Remind us this week, God, I, I want to ask that you would challenge each one of us to, to bring out that invitation of bringing people, inviting people to see you, to see real truth, to see the real way and the real life. And I thank you for inviting each one of us. And as we go to sing this song, God, I ask that it be pleasing to your ears and that we would praise you and shake the foundations of hell with this truth, that you are our God. And in your name we pray. Amen.